Why do you support refugees? I support refugees because my family were refugees. I support refugees because we are all God's children and we all deserve a safe place to grow in God's love. I support refugees because God made us all in God's image. I support refugees because I am a legal guardian of a minor asylee named Carol from Burundi. I support refugees because my Lord was a refugee. Because I welcome and I love my neighbor. Hi, and welcome to Hometown, a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries, the refugee and immigration ministry of the Episcopal Church. I'm Kendall Martin. And I'm Allison Duval. Today's episode features our interview with the Reverend Mike Wallens, co-chair of the Rio Grande Borderland Ministries, or RGBM, for the Diocese of the Rio Grande, and Nellie Fagan, project coordinator for the Rio Grande Borderland Ministries through Blueprint. Mike Wallens is the vicar of an Episcopal church in Marfa, Texas, and serves four other churches in the Big Bend region of Far West Texas. The Rio Grande Borderland Ministries, which Mike serves, covers all of New Mexico and Far West Texas. Their ministries include working with the Anglican Diocese of Northern Mexico, as well as shelters on the U.S. side of the border. Mike helps coordinate responses to the humanitarian crisis along the southern border of the United States, maintaining open communication with the Border Patrol in the Big Bend sector, and supporting Rio Grande Borderland Ministries' partnership with Boquillas Beyond Mexico Mission Incorporated. In Nellie's role as project coordinator for the Rio Grande Borderland Ministries, she focuses on developing and implementing strategy for marketing, communications, and fundraising. Nellie is passionate about social justice, advocacy, and building community. Allison, I really enjoyed today's conversation with Mike and Nellie, and I'm really excited for folks who don't know a lot about the ministry to learn more about the important work that they're doing. Me too. And one of the things I love most about doing the Hometown Podcast with you, Kendall, is getting to know local ministries across the Episcopal Church. And I especially think that at this moment, it's so important for folks all across the country to hear what's happening along the southern border and what the experiences of Episcopal churches and dioceses and local ministries are at this moment. So listeners, we really hope you enjoy today's conversation. So thank you, Mike and Nellie, so much for joining us today. Uh, We're so happy to talk with you. And Mike, we'd love to start off with you and have you talk to our listeners and tell them about the Rio Grande Borderland Ministries and how it came to be and what it looks like today. Thank you for uh, having Nellie and I talk with you. Um, I really appreciate it. I appreciate all the the ministries that uh, the Episcopal Migration Ministry performs and does and and it's great to be part of the new new approaches with asylum seekers and detention centers. So thank you for that. The Rio Grande Borderland Ministry, I came into it about three years ago, three and a half years ago when I moved to this area. And it was it's been in existence for nine years. And when it first started out, it basically took people from three different areas along the border. One is the region that I'm in is called the Big Bend region, basically goes from Big Bend National Park to just outside of El Paso. And then the next region is El Paso and Juarez. And then on the um, west side of the diocese, which goes up to the Arizona border, it's in uh, Deming, Columbus, and 
Palomas, Mexico. And so when it first started out, from what I can tell, um, it basically was just funding for two clergy, part-time funding uh, for two clergy in the El Paso Juarez region and in uh, Deming and Palomas. And um, then it started to expand in the Big Bend region. We uh, started to look at what the needs were here when I came. And so we've expanded that along with the expansion um, into Juarez with two other shelters and uh, into Palomas with a women's co-op. And so when I, just after I first got here, um, the Reverend Paul Moore was the founder of it. And then Susan Hutchins and Kathleen Cannon um, McNellis were both part of it. And as the needs arose on the border, uh, we, we started to focus a little more as to what could be done, especially with the people seeking asylum. And so when, when, as that issue started getting greater and greater, we realized that we, we meaning in the Diocese of the Rio Grande, could not do this all by ourselves, nor were we doing it all by ourselves. We focused on creating a borderland summit, which um, the first year it was in uh, El Paso. And at that summit, we invited all the Episcopal dioceses along the border uh, of, you know, from Big Bend to California. And then we also had representatives from the diocese of Western Mexico, the bishops from Western Mexico, um, Northern Mexico, and El Salvador, and it was Honduras. And we all got together with people who were doing ministry and we started to form uh, partnerships and bonds. And so the two, for instance, the two um, shelters that we work with in Juarez are really under the direction of a priest from the Diocese of Northern Mexico, um, Hector Trejo. And and then we've been in contact with, and we started sharing information. So for instance, when people would flood a certain part of the border, then we would help out that part um, that need there. So for instance, in Nogales, Arizona, uh, we helped out with Roger um, who was there and has an active ministry on both sides of the border. And so when they were given, for instance, a huge donation of clothes, brand new clothes and everything, we then divided it up and, and it got sent to all the different dioceses along the border. So um, it helped us expand our relationships and share knowledge because as we all know, everything changes almost daily around the border. And so something happens here that might have already happened in Arizona, then we learn from them. Or something happens 
here that hadn't happened in Arizona and then all of a sudden does, then they call us. And so it makes for a, an important network. And within RGBM, then we have ministries in Ojinaga, Mexico, Boquias, and and all the little villages beyond Boquias, both in Mexico. That's in my sector. Um, and then um, I think that's basically it. I don't know if I answered your question, but oh, you 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 answered it beautifully. And more than that, I think what's so it's always striking to me, and I think it probably will be for our listeners as well that. I think for folks in the interior who are near neither the coastal regions, the northern or the southern border, there's just this kind of um, generic notion of the border. And there's not this acknowledgement of how different the border looks and how even customs and border protection, border patrol separate the border into sec- sections. And so just hearing from how you are partnering across the border with other Episcopal dioceses on both sides, U.S. and Mexico, and responding contextually with what's happening, but also learning from what's happening elsewhere, I think it's just really important context for our listeners. And you mentioned briefly the the work that you're doing in Ohinaga. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the asylum shelter, the indigenous shelter, and what that work currently looks like there. So when I first got here, and as things started to heat up along the border, um, I basically was wondering what we could do and what was going on in Ohinaga since we're right, almost right there. We're about 45 minutes away. And so um, a member of our church, Bob Crockett, um, has people uh, who work for him on his ranch and they commute from Ohinaga up to Marquette, Texas, which is the one of the churches I'm at. And so we asked them and they, told us about what was going on in Ohinaga. And so what happened was the um, federal government, Mexican federal government, um, was running two shelters, one for indigenous people who would come down out of the mountains to work in the agricultural fields. Um, outside, it's, it's part of Ohinaga, but it, technically it's way out in the middle of nowhere, uh, in between Ohinaga and Chihuahua, Mexico. And then they also ran a shelter in Ohinaga, and the shelter it was for people who were seeking asylum for um, people, well, at the time, it was just for people who were seeking asylum and for uh, including unaccompanied minors. Um, so that shelter um, has, uh, well, I can describe in just a minute. But anyways, the Fed, when the new president came, into office in Mexico, they shut, they said, we're not supporting these shelters anymore. So all of a sudden, the um, city of Ohinaga had all these people who were not being taken care of. And so the mayor of Ohinaga um, appointed his wife to take over both shelters. And so, um, the one of the city commissioners who has connections with us up here in uh, Marfa um, contacted me, and um, and then I went down and and talked with him. And there, in addition to that, there are those two shelters which I'll talk about in just a minute. There are two other 
um, sort of connections. One's um, a really fascinating one in that the head of the cartel in Ohinaga is currently serving time in a prison in Chicago. And one of the ministers in Marfa, uh, who has a, an amazing conversion story, but he was in prison too, and he used to be a drug dealer, but he's uh, now a pastor in an independent church here in Marfa. Through um, his connections, he talked with the head of the cartel in, um, in prison in Chicago, and that head of cartel um, found Jesus, literally found Jesus, or Jesus found him. And he um, then said he wanted to help out. And so in addition to the two shelters we worked with, we received a grant from the UTO offering. The UTO grant, we received a grant to establish a bilingual youth ministry from Marfa into Ohinaga, and that's on the Highway 60, it's called the 67 Corridor. And um, the, the former head of the cartel, through his daughters, gave us uh, his social club to use for youth ministry down there. And um, in addition, is funding building a church. He, he gave us land. He said, you can use it for youth ministry, but you have to build a church. So we weren't ones to complain. So um, the church is being built, and we use the social club for youth ministry um, as part of the grant from, the, uh, from UTO. So that's been great. So these two shelters, uh, the one that's for indigenous people is really stark. They, they have, they're a series of two small rooms, and um, because they don't, um, they're used to cooking on fires outdoors, there's no kitchen. So it's like a, a sink and then uh, a, a area where they can store some food. And then the other room is for sleeping, usually four to six people. And fresh water has to be trucked into them. Um, once a week, and it, they have to use that water to take showers, to cook, to clean. They don't have washing machines, but they built these outdoor uh, washing tubs, so out of cement, and there's a, scrub, a place you can scrub the clothes, and then a place to rinse it off. Um, but there's uh, we are in the process of putting um, uh, solar panels in there because there's really no electricity that comes into this this place. And the children that are there, there's a school there, but it's um, the Mexican government uh, stopped the teachers from coming due to some financial reason. I don't know all the details there. So uh, we're in the process of trying to help uh, fund some teaching and some some of the classroom, the schools there. When we put in solar panels, which we do in other parts of Mexico, um, when there's a school, not only do the solar panels go in, but we also um, have enough money raised that we provide the school with computers and um, 
and refrigerators and things like that. So there's uh, in in this in the indigenous shelter, there's nothing there for the children, and usually there's 95 to depending. Sometimes the families will go if they're not harvesting, they will go back up to um, the mountains where they came from and come back again. A large number of people they'll come and stay at the shelters and the kids, and when their parents are gone working, there's just uh, nothing for them. There's no educational opportunity. There's really no playground. There's um, and so the older children will look after the younger ones while the parents are out in the fields working. So that's that's the one shelter. In order to get to that shelter, we have to go and cross through a um, a federal police. I can't, I don't even what you call it, you know, where they, they inspect your vehicles and everything. And so, and it's also sort of dangerous because of the cartel. So when we go there, we go into Ohinaga and then the city commissioner drives us in his truck. So they don't, um, we're relatively safe in the city truck and the cartel won't come near it. Um, the other shelter that we, um, work with is in the city of Ohinaga, and that is for people who are seeking asylum or, and now have been deported. And as I said, it's also for unaccompanied minors, both seeking asylum and those who have been deported. We have uh, a section for girls and a section for boys that have um, 20 bunk beds in them and showers and everything. And then there's another section for families. And then there's another section for uh, single parents and, uh, and their children, if they have any. Um, and then what's interesting on um, one side of the shelter is a morgue, a funeral home. And uh, unfortunately, it, when people try and come across, they by the time they get to the shelter, because they've crossed the desert and they're really physically in bad shape, a number of them die. And so the uh, funeral home is kind enough to provide uh, funeral services and um, for free to any any um, person seeking asylum who's died at the shelter. The other on the other side of the shelter is a city-run um, physical therapy uh, building. And so what, what they've been able to do is when people come to the shelter, they're obviously, again, not in good physical shape. And so they provide free physical therapy for people. And we were able to get 30 wheelchairs to bring down to uh, Ohinaga so that when they first get there, they're in a wheelchair, and because it's only across the street, um, across the driveway, really, it's easy for them to get to and get taken care of like that. And so these shelters provide food, um, clothes, and um, and then with the connection that we have um, in our sector, that I have in our sector with the Border Patrol, uh, which is a which is a good um, 
good relationship, that allows us then to uh, work with them and make sure, and this is all uh, pre-pandemic, work with them and make sure that um, that they get the proper paperwork they need, that they uh, know when their number's being called, so I might get a call or whatever. Um, and then I can let the people in the shelter know. Uh, the other thing that's happened just before the pandemic is we started to receive uh, unaccompanied minors who were being deported. Um, and they ranged in age from seven to 17. And fortunately, because of this relationship with the Border Patrol, they would call and say, we're getting ready to bring how many, 25 uh, children to the border to cross back into Mexico. And um, I really appreciate that because what we have to do then is make sure we can get a couple vans to pick them up because if we don't, the minute they cross over that border, the cartel's right there and they swoop them up and use them for trafficking, whether it's drugs or sex and everything. And so um, that's life in Oinaga and, and what we're dealing with. Right now with the pandemic, there's not as much traffic going across the border. Um, there's a little, and sometimes the, uh, again, what pays off with the relationship with the Border Patrol is um, they will call me and say, and I have to say that the Border Patrol that I deal with are compassionate people. They're not zealots like is portrayed by a lot of people. The ones in the Big Bend sector really have a heart. So they call me and they say, we've got a family that legally we have to separate. We don't want to. Can you take them if we get permission? And so they call up the chain of command, get permission. And so, for example, I had a 19-year-old um, father, 17-year-old mother, they were married and a six-month-old baby. Because the mother was underage, they legally or by protocol had to separate them. So that's when they called and said, can you take them in? And I'm fortunate that uh, where, where I live, we have um, four casitas that people have set aside for people seeking asylum. Um, so that when this family came across, we were able to keep them there. We got them food, shelter, and then they were actually, no one wants to stay down here. Okay, they, they have family or friends, some other place. And so this family was going to Detroit. So uh, once, once we got them settled, we got them a physical um, at the uh, regional medical center that we have here. And once we got them settled, then we I contacted the family in Detroit, figured out where to go. Um, the Border Patrol paid for the bus tickets, so we didn't have to pay for those. Um, but we took care of the shelter and, you know, clothes and food and everything. And then we have to put together, they didn't speak English very well, so we put together a series of cards. We knew what the bus bus route was and we put together a series of cards you know numbered one two three four so they knew where they were going 
when they got off that, they go to the second card, they see the name of the bus, you know, the bus number and the name of the town that that bus is going to for them. And on one side, it was in Spanish, another side is in English. So they could show someone because, well, this young couple, they just had no idea what was going, you know, how to navigate anything. And so, um, and then, uh, so we provided these cards because they had to stop four times just to get, change buses just to get to Detroit. And once they got to Detroit, um, someone in the family called me and said they're here. And, and so we've kept in touch. And the other thing that when we're able to do that, like we've sent people to Detroit and Hollywood, Florida and Denver, Colorado, we then also are in touch with the churches, um, mostly Episcopal churches, but other churches who then help get them settled. And then that helps increase our network of people who will support this ministry and everything. So um, that's, that's Ohinaga. Well, it's just, I don't know if you, you noticed as you were talking, for our listeners, we're on Zoom together. And I was just reacting um, to everything that you were saying. It's, it's just stunning how, like, how difficult the, the ministry context has to be, how dangerous it is, how that you're not only working with, like, U.S. federal officials, but you're working with Mexican federal government and local city government as well. Like, the amount of work that it takes to do what you do, to do what Rio Grande Borderland Ministries does to, to support and help people is just phenomenal. Um, and I know within EMM, we are one so blessed by your time with us and so grateful for it. And also, um, we hope we can continue coming alongside the work that you do to help further connect people to support in their destination cities. So just a plug for listeners coming down the pipeline, we hope that more opportunities like what Mike has described will be made available um, through this continuing relationship that we're in. So thank you for that. And um, thanks for letting me respond yeah. to the amazing work that you do. Oh, Mike, I wanted to ask a question. I know in addition to COVID, but also various legislative policies that have happened as of late and the way that that's affected folks coming to seek asylum. And I'm curious from your standpoint, like what you've seen change over the last six months or so. Um, I guess both in terms of the folks at the shelter, but then also folks that are needing help on this side of the border. What's, what's happened is that basically our government is using the, the COVID pandemic to, to really stop any sort of traffic back and forth across the border. So what, it, unless you're considered essential and um, I'm not, which is all right. And, um, but what, what's nice is at least where we are, um, because a number of people work here in Marfa or Alpine and live in Ohinaga, they're able to go back and forth. So we're able to at least get supplies and needs met that way there. And, um, not only do we uh, do that for the shelters, but even in the city of Ohinaga, because a lot of times when a family gets deported, they obviously are not going to go back to where they came from because they're running for their lives from that place. 
And so um, we've been working with the city of Ohinaga, not just in the shelters, but uh, for instance, we just um, are raised enough money to have five um, other shelters or houses built for some families who were deported, didn't know where they were going to go. And the city of Ohinaga and, and our group split the cost. And um, so we, um, we can do some things as far as supporting people who are waiting to come across, but because of the, the um, rules and the protocol and everything that's in place now with the, that the federal government has done, there's really very little movement. Once in a while, um, some people will come across at a different place. We don't have a wall here. That's sort of the nice thing about being near Big Bend National Park and the, the way the Rio Grande runs, you can't put a wall. It's just, it's even more expensive and really architecturally impossible. So um, people will continue to try and cross illegally. And then um, I will uh, get a call from the border patrol and to, to talk with them. And in some cases, we, we work with the border patrol and can get them the help that they need. Um, and because there's a trusting relationship, we can keep them here rather than put them in detention until some decisions are made. And so that, that makes a, a, a big difference, I think. But as far as movement goes, there's not much. Um, we used to be able to to attend uh, hearings. Uh, they had the tent hearings and everything, but they don't even do that anymore right now because no one can come across to go to those hearings. So that's sort of where we are. Yeah, I hope that listeners hear in the subtext of what you're saying, how how terribly troubling and frightening it is that the, gover- the US federal government, the Trump administration has used the pandemic as pretext to deny people the right to seek asylum, which is enshrined in international law as being a fundamental human right. So I hope people hear that and also just appreciate so much the difficulty of the work that you all have been doing and that you are doing now to support people when the US federal government is allowing them to seek seek safety. Yeah, just one other thing with that. What's interesting is some of the unaccompanied minors who we talk with and work with um, were telling us that some of the people that they knew in detention where they were, once they were um, diagnosed with COVID, were flown back, say, to Guatemala. And uh, when they get to Guatemala, they um, the, the government doesn't want, there's no place for them to go because they can't go to where they used to go. And so the and because they have the, the uh, COVID, um, they're treated like lepers. And, and really, they're sort of placed out in the middle of nowhere, unprotected, unloved, and uncared for. And it's really uh, cruel, from my perspective, what the government's doing by sending unaccompanied children, flying them back, and just getting them off the plane, and that's it. And it's... I don't know. That's it's just cruel and and uh, immoral. 
absolutely. Kendall, you were going to, you were going to add in. Oh no, I was just going to say, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think people need to understand the layers. I was just reading an article in the New York times and the same thing is happening to folks that are being sent back to Venezuela and the Venezuelan government is calling them bioterrorist. So it's just a really frightening thing that's happening and these people are being unprotected. And then as you mentioned earlier, Mike, even before the pandemic, when unaccompanied children or anyone is deported, if there's not someone there on the other side to help make sure they make it to a safe place, they'll be kidnapped into human trafficking, drug trafficking. Like it is, It's a terrifying, terrifying scenario. And I hope that people appreciate that when they're advocating for asylum protections and for asylum seekers, they are also advocating against these terrible practices that both, both you and Kendall just mentioned. I was wondering if you kind of turning turning a leaf, hopefully to something about um, more ministry on the ground and partnership. Could you talk to us about what's what's work going on with Boquillas and Beyond Mexico Mission, and how you're working together with them? Boquillas and Beyond uh, Mexico Mission is run uh, by Rusty Nelson, who lives in Marfa, Texas. And um, when I first came down here, Rusty came and talked with me and and wanted to um, see if if the church could be involved with them, um, which we are. And it is, it's an amazing, he, he worked really hard to establish a relationship with the people in Boquillas. Now, um, I guess most people would know about Boquillas, but Boquillas is a small village on, you can only you can get to it by two ways. One is you can uh, cross the border in a truck and drive for nine to twelve hours, depending on how well the roads are and everything. Because you have to go around. There's no direct route to Boquillas, except if you want to go uh, into Big Bend National Park, and then the crossing is by boat only, and it's not a Oh, it's a it's a rowboat. I mean, it's not one of those big ferries. It's a rowboat. Uh, we call it the international ferry. But um, it's people on the other side will row across, pick us up, and that's how we bring all the equipment and stuff that we use uh, there. Um, Bokias, when right after 9/11 happened, basically the whole town shut down. Um, because there's no nothing crossing the borders, and then um, and then it opened back up, and then when the pandemic came, now it shut down. But when it opened back up, back up, we were able to um, go across and begin to uh, work with the people there. And when I say work with, we don't go across and tell them, "Here's what we're going to do for you." We go across and establish relationships and listen to them and then figure out what the needs are. And so we um, ended up uh, figuring out what the needs were in Boquillas. And then there's a small town uh, in La Union. And then there's another small town in, in, in Jabancillos. And in those two towns, they didn't have electricity. So we came across, put in um, solar panels, and we're sort of protected because we, when we first started this, the um, the local uh, 
federal government or federal police came and asked us what we're doing and they asked us if we could put solar panels into their uh, compound and because they didn't have there's not really good electricity where we are and everything and so we did that so that afforded us now protection and uh, they help us make sure that what we put in and bring across isn't stolen or taken. And so we um, are put in a school in Jabonsillos, and um, we're, we finished that school. We painted churches in Bocchius and, um, and these other two towns. Uh, we have solar systems put in to the school at uh, La Union, and we included, of course, um, computers and digital projectors. Um, part of the reason we focused on La Union, we just are almost finished with the uh, middle school, is because they had primary school and high school, but the middle school students would have to go to a town that was really only about 30 minutes, 30 miles away, but because the roads are so bad, it took two hours um, to get there. I mean, it's just, and, and it's not a safe road. So the people in the town asked if we would consider um, building the middle school. And so we uh, obviously said yes, but they're the ones they they want to do the work. It's not we work side by side with them, but they they don't want people necessarily to come in and just do for them. They want they want to they they buy into the whole thing and they want to be part of it. So, for instance, the two schools, the primary school and the high school, were um, were on federal land, and they were Mexican you know, schools run by the Mexican government. They uh, told us, we don't want to build the middle school on that land because what happens is when we put in the um, solar panels and bring computers and everything, the federal government will come in and confiscate them. So, so we, they said, can you, can we build the school on this person's property, which was, on the other side of town, but this is a small village. It's not like a big town. On the other side of town, and and that way the federal government can't touch whatever you put there. Plus, then when you bring computers and stuff and bring them to the high school or the primary school, we can store them in, you know, in the middle school, and then no one's going to steal them. And so, and the federal government won't come in. So that's what we've done. And we're almost we're, we're almost finished, and um, then the pandemic hit. So we're not quite finished with that. Um, unless I mean we we can't we, if we bring the materials the long way around on the roads, the cartel will take the truck, confiscate everything. So part of this is we uh, we're waiting. We are able to store some materials in Oinaga at the shelter uh, that will be for Bokias. Um, that is for Bokias, but right now we're just, um, that's on hold too. But we're, we're in the process of uh, working to 
educate people about what's going on here. Uh, that's part of what RGBM is doing. Um, educating people, um, trying to build up uh, volunteers and, uh, and relationships with other churches so that when, because we'll be able to cross eventually, and when that happens, we just want to hit the ground running finish up what we've done. We've got some new plans and ideas in the works and we, we don't want to be slowed down once we can get across. You know, I'm so amazed at the amount of uh, relationship building and partnerships. I think that's just so foundational for, for doing really good work and for folks who really want to get involved. What, what type of opportunities are there in terms of volunteering or staying up to date? figuring out how they can be a part of all this awesome work. Well, I just want to echo what Mike said earlier, just that I'm so grateful to be able to have this conversation to share the work of RGBM. And so, yeah, so thank you, Allison and Kendall, um, for this partnership with EMM and the opportunity to be on the podcast. In terms of ways to get involved, given the, given the circumstances of the pandemic, it is hard to get involved physically during this time. But we are meeting regularly with volunteers over Zoom. So if you're looking for an opportunity to learn more, any and all supporters of RGBM are welcome to join in these conversations. Um, and I think the best way is just to connect with us through our through our website, which is riograndeborderland.org. And that's also where to go just to learn more about RGBM and sign up for our newsletter, um, which I think is a primary way of learning and kind of seeing the ongoing changes and voices of that make up RGBM. Um, all of our past newsletters are posted on our RGBM now blog. So I definitely encourage anyone listening to check that out just to see what we've pushed out in the past. Um, Allison and Kendall have been wonderful in uh, contributing advocacy opportunities and, so yeah, so on Facebook and Instagram, we're Rio Grande Borderlands. Um, and then on Twitter, it's RG Borderlands. So again, we're pushing out content fairly, fairly regularly on there as well, just to share the story. And please like, subscribe, do all that. Well, and I also wanted to ask Mike if you have anything to add to that answer before I pitch you another question. Two things. Uh that comes to mind. One is we're in the process of putting together a virtual pilgrimage. Uh, we had a pilgrimage all set to go and everything was set. We would go from all parts of the border from where I am uh, in Ohinaga and, and Marfa to El, El Paso and Juarez to Deming and Palomas. And then the pandemic hit. So we're in the process of putting together a virtual pilgrimage so that people can still experience what's going on. The people, for instance, in um, Ohinaga are, are willing to film it and uh, we'll have interviews with Border Patrol people and with families who are waiting to come across. And, and we, we can. Some of the uh, unaccompanied minors are willing to speak as long as we, you know, hide their faces and everything like that. But um, so that's that's one thing. Um, secondly, the uh, I think it's important to know what I think the question was asked earlier, Kendall, about the uh, pandemic. And one of the things that happened is the two shelters that we work with in Juarez. Those were shelters for people seeking asylum 
when the pandemic hit the city of uh, Juarez contacted the shelters and said, we, we would like to use your two shelters as a quarantine, place of quarantine for, um, for people coming into Mexico, whether they're being deported or whether they're coming up from uh, south of Mexico, south of Juarez. And so the whole mission of those shelters completely changed. So now they are, they come to one shelter for two weeks. If they don't have COVID or anything, then they're sent to the other shelter for two weeks. And so our mission there has completely changed because of the pandemic. Um, and so uh, again, we, we can't cross and, uh, but, What's interesting is that some of the people, most of the people that were in the shelter before the pandemic are now volunteering and working with the people who come in there uh, to be quarantined. And so it's really exciting and moving to watch people care for one another, even though their circumstances are are not very good, just sitting around waiting and everything. So that's exciting. The other, the other thing I just want to mention, this is more of a fun thing. Every year we have a celebration called Voices from Both Sides. It was featured, or not featured, it was picked up by Samantha B on her show. I watched that and, episode. Um, it was great. <laughs> anyways, that is really something that came 9-11. Once the border was closed, the town on the other side of Lajitas, which is in Texas, is is basically abandoned. And so to keep that up and and uh, keep that up, um, we worked with the um, people in Terralingua and do this voices from both sides. And so it's an all day festival. They build stages on both sides of the Rio Grande River and um and then at the at the end of it everybody gets in the river and holds hands from both sides. They alternate bands playing from both sides. But to begin it, the the man who uh, and it slipped my mind his name, but the one who founded it um insisted that it start with uh prayer and the Eucharist. So um, what we do, and last year our bishop came down, and what we do is we put everything we need for the Eucharist in a boat. We walk out in the middle of the river in our vestments and everything, and we pray and we celebrate the Eucharist, and then we uh, bring the Eucharist to people on both sides of the river, or they come into the river to us. And um, it's really pretty, uh, it's, it's a moving experience. It's a lot of fun. Um, what was interesting is last year, things really started heating up. And uh, there was a possibility that the Border Patrol uh, was going to say you can't do it this year. Um, and so as we were talking, you know, the, the head of it said, you know, we, talking to the border patrol, they said, look, God is going to be with us because that's the first thing we do on the river. And so the border patrol 
uh, said it was fine. They were not physically present there. They were off a ways just watching and what's because they didn't want anybody to cross illegally. So at that one, for instance, the only person that crossed illegally was from Croatia and they caught him. No one else crossed illegally. I mean, the, the youth there, a lot of them will cross the river to go to school and back and forth. So that's, that's the fun thing. It's always the Saturday before Mother's Day. So once we start it again, all of you are welcome to come. I really want to go. And as I was listening to you talk about how that event starts with a Eucharist in the river, it just, again, makes me reflect upon how unique your ministry circumstances and environment are that you're interfacing with federal governments of two countries. You are working with migrants who are fleeing persecution, violence, poverty, and drug cartels. You are doing all of that in the context of a pandemic. But what the church does, it, the church cares for people in their times of need, and the church brings the real presence of Christ and the holy amongst the people, wherever the church is, including celebrating the Eucharist in the middle of the river. Like That's just, it's beautiful and it's phenomenal. So we're hoping that people who've listened to this conversation are feeling really energized and motivated to support the work of RGBM. So Nellie, could you tell our listeners where folks can make a donation or how they can fundraise to support RGBM? Yeah. So if you'd like to make a donation to RGBM, you can do so on our website, which again is riograndeborderland.org, or you can send a check directly to the Episcopal Diocese of the Rio Grande at 6400 Cords Boulevard, Northwest, Albuquerque, New Mexico, 87120. Just be sure to indicate that your gift is directed to RGBM by earmarking the check with Borderlands or RGBM or something of that nature. And um, yeah, just I really hope that, as Allison said, listeners feel called to give because truthfully, financial gifts are what is sustaining RGBM right now because we can't physically go or most like our volunteers cannot necessarily go and do the work that they'd be doing um, normally. And we can't be bringing, as Mike said, we can't bring supplies. So sending financial gifts is is how we support RGBM in this time. So please consider giving. Thank you, Nellie. Oh, I was just going to say, I just feel really energized and excited and I love following along with the work that you all are doing. And I'm just so grateful for your time and We'll continue to make sure folks know what what you all are doing, and we're excited to keep connecting and partnering as much as possible. Thank you all so much. Yeah, I'm hoping I'm hoping that we'll see kind of an, another edition of the hometown RGBM collaboration one day because we, as we've mentioned, there are many kind of facets of RGBM, so lots of stories to tell still. Yeah. So in in this this fourth season of hometown, we've been going back to sort of our roots of how we started in the first season, which was talking to people about what home means to them and realizing how similar it is regardless of your situation. So I'd love for both of you, Mike and Nellie, to answer the question, what does home mean to you? I'm really grateful for this question and it caused me to do some thinking, um, which is always good. Um, To me, home, I feel like home isn't necessarily one place or even necessarily a place at all, but home is the feeling of being safe and having a sense of belonging. And 
when, so I'm, pre, I'm fairly new to this ministry. Um, I started with, um, I started collaborating with RGBM in May. And when I was reading the ministry's mission, I really resonated with the part of it that says, and I'm going to quote our mission, but you can see it on our website. Um, this is just a part of it that says, we are currently adapting to meet the needs of the humanitarian crisis unfolding in our border community. The compassionate response of RGBM to this crisis is simple, to feed, shelter, and care for our neighbors who are coming to the frontier of our diocese, seeking safety and the promise of a better life for their families. And I... I just think practicing God's call for us to love our neighbors as ourselves is what gives a sense of home. And that certainly is something that RGBM practices, which makes me so grateful to be to support these ministries and hoping that we can continue to define and redefine what home looks like and be able to offer that um, or support the work of those that are offering that to to individuals and that it doesn't necessarily mean a place, but a feeling, I guess, and a sense of security and belonging. So I was wondering if I could tell a story, a baseball story about home. You had me at story and baseball, so yes. Okay. Oh, good. Um, Because to me, when when you ask that question um, about home, uh, I think about baseball because that's the goal of baseball is always to get home. And it's also, this story illustrates, I think, what uh, RGBM and this ministry does and is all about. So it's a, it's a story about my all-time favorite hero, uh, baseball hero, and that is Ernie Banks. I grew up in Chicago, uh, right near Wrigley Field, and it was, it was home for me in the sense that um, I would... Uh, go to my grandfather would bring me to every opening day from the day I was born until I turned 18. So I've got ticket stubs from, he carried me in his arms into Wrigley Field and everything. So, so this happened one of the times when I was at the game. Ernie Banks uh, was to me a role model for professional athletes. He was always the first one there before the game starts warming up enthusiastic and he was always the last one to leave and when the game was over he would he'd take his spot um just outside the dug cubs dugout and people knew that and they would come down and uh, talk with him and uh, i think for anybody who's never been to wrigley field it's a neighborhood ballpark it's not one of these big gigantic stadiums it's just uh part of the neighborhood. So after a game was over, people, especially those of us who were in the bleachers, the bleacher bumps, would just sit and talk and catch up with one another. But we always knew to keep one eye on Ernie Banks because you never knew what was going to happen. So on this particular day, and, and this was a, actually a part of a story written in the Chicago Tribune. So that's how come I know some of the details. Um, but uh, what happened was this man came down with his daughter to um, talk, introduce her to Ernie Banks and everything. And he, he goes up to, at the after the game was over, he goes up to him and, and says, uh, Mr. Banks, um, 
this is a great game. And it was a great game because they beat our arch rivals the Milwaukee Braves. And so that was good. Anyways, um, and so Ernie Banks, before the man could say what he wanted, said, well, and he had a program. So he said, here, give me the program and I'll autograph it. And what's your daughter's name? And so he autographed it and everything. He said, uh, and Ernie said, well, what else can I do for you? He said, well, actually, um, this is my daughter's first game, first baseball game ever. And I brought her here and, and I, she loved everything. She loved the, the noise, the crack of the bats, the smells. Um, she loved the food. She ate everything there was to eat and everything. And Ernie Banks, you know, just smiled, said, well, that's great. He said, but um, my daughter's blind. And she can't see, she couldn't see what was going on. I tried to describe to her what the, what the baseball diamond looks like and everything, but I don't think it worked. And with that, Ernie Banks uh, picks her up because it's a low wall where the dugout is, picks her up over the wall and they go out to home plate. And they're uh, standing at home plate and he bends down and takes her hand and outlines the base at home plate and then he says come on we're going for a run and so he takes her hand and they start slowly running to first base and then um he he stops but before they get to first base stops picks her up and then places her on the bag so she can feel it that way then he has her go down and touch the bag and then they run to second base same thing picks her up and down now um at this, by this time, all of us who are there are paying attention to Ernie Banks. We always do, but this was, he had not done this before. So, um, as they were rounding second base and going to third base, he signaled to everybody who was still there, you know, to cheer and to, uh, for this little girl. And so we, we get to third base and he stops, picks her up, places her down, and then he basically, says, you know, we're going home, and they run to home plate, and then right at the end, and the crowd's cheering, and I mean, you think Ernie Banks hit a grand slam home run and everything, but the crowd's cheering, those of us who are there, he picks her up, and the picture in the Chicago Tribune has this girl, little girl, with this huge smile on her face, and Ernie Banks with a huge smile on his face, and then he placed her on home plate and he told her, you just hit a home run and you're home. And I tell that story because um, that's sort of what happens here at the border. Um, we reach out to one another and people are coming here trying to find a home, a safe place to be, uh, a place where they can enjoy one another's company, make a, a living and not live in fear. And and so just as Ernie Banks took this little girl around the bags, we take the hands of people who are coming here and work with them to get them to a home base, to get them to a safe place. And um, and the people who are in the stands are everybody in the church, and uh, even if they're not in the church, who work with our ministry and support us even though you don't live on the border and um and it's really uh 
it it takes a whole stadium, you know, it say takes a village to raise a child, it takes a whole stadium of people to uh, work together to provide homes, safety, shelter for uh, people who have none because they're running for their lives. And so um, I might not have answered your question directly, but the other thing is there's a, a prayer poem that's written by Ted Loader. It's called Home at Last. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but I'll just read the last part of it. Have mercy on us, heal us, Lord, and deliver us from our self-promotion, cowardice, and lack of compassion. And then empower us to be among those who dare to do the things that are just and beautiful, true and faithful, visionary and deeply joyful, so we may be free and whole and home at last, home where we belong, home with our true selves, home with each other, home in the human family, home with you through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen to all of that. Thank you, Mike. That was your story is my favorite answer we've ever gotten. <laughs> Thank you both so much for all your time and for being part of the podcast. Thank you all really so much. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you so much for joining us today, listeners. Be sure to learn more about Rio Grande Borderland Ministries at their website, riograndeborderland.org. Sign up for their monthly newsletter and stay up to date on their ministries and the ways that you can be involved. You can also follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Rio Grande Borderlands. And I'd highly recommend all their social media feeds. Their Instagram is especially like just beautiful. It also really gives you an insight into what the work is like on the ground. You can follow along with EMM on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EMM Refugees. Join in the Ministry of Welcome by making a gift to support Episcopal Migration Ministries. No gift is too small, and all gifts are used to support and grow our work resettling refugees, supporting asylum seekers, and creating welcoming communities for all of our immigrant siblings. Visit EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash give or text hometown to 91999. Our theme song composer is Abraham Mwenda Ikondo. Find his music at abrahammwenda.bandcamp.com. Until next time, listeners, peace be with you and all those you consider home. <laughs>